I suffered from pathological shyness as a child and the whole idea of getting out onto the world stage. I mean, I remember these dreams where I would be talking to potential wine trade people or something like that and just feeling all the fear and anxiety and, and humiliation of feeling completely out of my depth. Is it imposter uh, so syndrome of a kind of very variety? Much so. Yeah. So you have to, you know, these these expressions, uh, fake it till you make it or fake it till you believe it, all these <laughs> wonderful things. Well, had to write a few textbooks of those myself. <laughs> I don't think there's any way you can undertake something like that without confronting your fears and also just not listening to them, finding a way to shove them into the back of your head and la 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 la, you know, only just going forward. Because if you think about things too much, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future program, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Describing herself as principal and senior plate spinner at the critically acclaimed winery Chien Bleu, located in the Rhone Valley, southern France, Nicole Sierra Rollet manages a link between the business and the outside world. The daughter of a food critic and a wine collector, as part of her truly intercontinental upbringing, as a child, Nicole attended French Lycée in New York and Milan, also spending time in Germany, Spain and Brazil. Having started her professional life in international politics, finance and think tanks, Nicole re-engineered her professional goals and battled to overcome her inherent shyness to become a wine professional. I was born in New York. I was the daughter of a food critic and a businessman who was a wine collector and so because I was an only child for many years, I got dragged around to all these wonderful restaurants from the earliest of ages and discovered that if I behaved very, very well, they'd take me with them. So the, that was my the first years in, in Manhattan. And then I moved to Milan when I was seven with my family. And I attended the French Lycée in New York and in Milan. So what were you like as a student? Did you enjoy school? Were you particularly academic or were you not so dedicated? What was it, what was it like for you? Oh, absolutely. As nerdy as they get. <laughs> <laughs> it was the ultimate geeky, shy, quiet child. Scared <laughs> <laughs> of my own shadow and, uh, and keen to get all that classic validation that a lot of women uh, especially young girls are very much addicted to. I had very outspoken, interesting, intelligent parents, but they took up a lot of airtime, and uh, I just liked to cling to the pant leg and uh, speak when spoken to and try to come home with good grades from school and stay out of trouble. So your career, as fair to say, has been 
completely multifaceted. You had a career in international politics and finance and with think tanks and now we can obviously we'll move on to what you do now. You went to university I take it and then what did you do out of university? What was your kind of first foray into the working world? Well, I was very lucky that my mother, uh, having grown up in America, was very familiar with the U.S. Uh, liberal arts education system. And even though I was in Europe, she encouraged me to apply to U.S. universities. And as a result, I was very privileged to be able to attend Vassar College, which I recommend to anyone who has a slightly intellectual bent and yet wants the whole U.S. college experience. So uh, it's one of the seven sisters affiliated with the Ivy League and it's co-ed now, but it was a, a tremendous experience and it just took me all apart, put me all back together and allowed me the space to deconstruct the very privileged upbringing that I had had. And when I say privileged, I mean very much socioculturally privileged and keep the parts of it that I cherished and completely rebuild a, a, a different vision for for myself a different set of aspirations in life that were much more about being in the driver's seat and designing your destiny all these very american things that sound cheesy perhaps on some of the <laughs> talk show programs but in my particular case with my particular background and all the weight of expectations that came from being a you know young girl in a family like that were very very helpful and liberating to me so when I first came out, that was the 80s. You may remember that, um, well, maybe you don't. You look very young to me. But, uh, <laughs> I remember the 80s. <laughs> those, those were the years of the, the yuppies. There was a big boom of young professionals, upwardly mobile, all of that. And I suppose a product of my environment, I jumped onto that bandwagon and spent the first years of my career in the financial world. I was taken into a bank training program, which in those days was the ultimate aspiration of any young person coming out of a good university and not too sure what they wanted to do with their lives. I'd studied international politics, and because my parents had given me the fortune of living in different countries and learning a number of languages, I think I had about four or five under my belt at that point, I expected to be more on the NGO side of things, but these training programs were calling out to people with international experience and, and languages. And I was able to do that for a few years and learn a lot of the business side of the world that I had been somewhat sheltered from. And I eventually, I'm very happy that I was forced to do all that tea accounting and those things because it does come in very handy when you're mm. running a small business, especially a little winery with all the challenges that that brings. So the first years were spent on the international banking circuit. Did you enjoy it? I mean, obviously you're saying it was a good kind of founding career for what you do now, but was that where your heart was? Were you passionate about it? Ah, that's such a good question because that is definitely something that uh, changes very much with the different decades, I think. Uh, I have to say that my first years were really useful and interesting because the caliber of people that the bank was pulling into its ranks in those years 
was great as a peer group. People were motivated, educated from everywhere, going places, and it was very fun to be with a group of people that all shared that desire to to really push themselves and learn as much as possible and produce as much as possible. So uh, living in Manhattan in the 80s and working in a bank, mm-hmm. a bit like sex in the city, you know, it was right place, <laughs> right time, and lots and lots of fun and lots of parties and lots of, you know, going straight from the office to the party, back to the office, mm-hmm. <laughs> with only a few hours of sleep. <laughs> um, and Studio 54, all of that, and really taking on Manhattan in a way that I think anyone who was of my peer group uh, would have remembered those years fondly. I think we all knew at the time, even though we didn't have much life experience, that we were you know, very much finger on the pulse. But then going back to your question, I think that it became increasingly clear to me that my vocation and my place in this world was not going to be in the financial world, I think up until the middle management level, it's a very validating system because if you are good and you're bringing value, it's very egalitarian. I think everybody's seen Wall Street and movies like that and Gordon Gecko and all these oh. sharks. And uh, certainly I don't seem like someone who would have wanted to or been able to make their mark in that particular set of people. But I did find that it was so helpful to be in a situation where you were being measured on your results. It was very meritocratic and they didn't care what your gender was, what your background was, what books you did or didn't read at home or who you spent your time with. If you were very motivated, there was a place for you. And if you were bringing home the bacon, you were promoted and and validated. And never was that more true than my years at Merrill Lynch where I found a very, very supportive and egalitarian system for advancement and promotion. And I personally never had any of these unpleasant situations, which you sometimes hear about in very macho environments. It didn't happen to me in my time there. On the contrary, I was surrounded by very supportive people and it was really very surprising very different than what I had expected. I had worked for a while in a think tank and I love that. I worked for Latin American political think tank called the Council of the Americas, David Rockefeller. That was also very enjoyable, but hush hush and the hallowed halls of ambassadors and prime ministers and all the, you know, CEOs, all these, these people and very much like being in a little ivory tower and then going from there to the trading floor at Merrill Lynch with mm. 750 people packed into one giant room uh, was a huge culture shock. And I did develop a lot of adrenaline addiction. Uh, one of the problems with those jobs is that you are so caught up in the thick of things that you lose your capacity, or at least I did, to differentiate between what's an emergency in the financial market or with your client or something, and what's a genuine emergency of something mm-hmm. happening in the world that um, is of true immediate consequence to some people. So it feels like you're in the newsroom of a big newspaper or maybe the emergency room of a hospital in terms of the amount of adrenaline that's floating around 
but sometimes in terms of what your calling is, it's easy to lose track of, of that kind of thing because you're so caught up in things. So that started to no longer be working for me. And I started to question a lot of things, especially because my mother passed away. And for those who are listening and who have been through that experience, uh, that's always a moment of reckoning for just about everyone. You always take stock. You always ask yourself what your place will have been in this world. And when you have to write the obituary of someone that you're very close to, it brings into focus what yours would say mm. and how it would be written and, and what you would leave behind. And it suddenly changes the yardstick. And you ask yourself some some very difficult questions that might have been lurking in the shadows. And that was a moment of deep reflection for me. I started to understand the notion of, of legacy, of what you want to leave behind, the notion of legacy, not just in the sense of your family or your, your finances, but really your purpose, your place in the world, what the world needs. And I went through a long period of trying to put together a vision for how I could bring some value. I was concerned that I didn't have the concentration of skills in any individual area, whether it was intelligence or experience or talent of any kind, to really move the dial for the world in one area. I wasn't going to find that cure for cancer. I wasn't going to write that book uh, that would be on shelves, you know, the, centuries later. And yet I did want to do something of beauty, of purpose, of meaning, and of, of some form of expression of purity. And when I started looking around me with a different set of eyes, I realized that there was this incredible opportunity presented almost on a silver platter, which hadn't escaped me, but the pure value of it had somewhat passed by me, which was to help my family with this enormous project that we had undertaken. My husband had found this vineyard that was completely in disrepair, and he was very, very passionate about the potential of the terroir there to make Grand Cru quality wine. It was also a ninth century priory that had no water, no electricity, only a giant fig tree. And there's a petrified sheep dung going up to the sky covered with ivy, like those ruins that you see on the side of the road. And he had found it just before we met. It was his big life project to turn it around. And I didn't know anything about winemaking. I mean, you can enjoy fine wine, but you know, I might enjoy watches but i never thought about making watches mm. <laughs> completely different experience right to go to the other side there and and think of, of producing it so initially i said listen i'll try to fix up the buildings and help with the decoration and, and do the things that are probably within the skill set of a lay person but i certainly can't aspire to helping out on the wine side and his sister-in-law uh, his sister, excuse me, and her husband, my in-laws, were very knowledgeable already about wine and winemaking. There was a lot of winemaking in the family, and they joined us. And the three of them were really looking closely at what to do about the vineyard. And I was really not focusing on it 
directly when the combination of factors and the changing of that lens really came home to roost because suddenly I saw that that project was so exciting. I went to study a bit of winemaking on his advice and understood why it was that they were so excited about this. But I also realized that our family would not have the wherewithal to push that boulder up the mountain (laughs) without somebody sort of stopping everything and sacrificing themselves for the project and for the family. And I thought, wow, I can't help today. But if I project myself forward and I think about a life dedicated to having helped to make that happen and turning this incredible historic site around, trying to bring it to the highest levels of what the world would appreciate and enjoy, leaving something hopefully for our family, but more importantly, giving it a new lease on life. That is something that I would be excited about. And that is something that I would want to have left behind. Put my little brick into that continuum of time, something that's been around for more than a thousand years, try to leave it even better for the next guys for the next 1000 years. And that just seemed like a really beautiful thing to have done that might just be within the boundaries of something that I could pull off if I really stretched myself. And of course, it involved going back to school, it involved starting again as a rookie at the bottom of this giant mountain to climb in a completely new profession with no friends and no enemies, you know, just (laughs) um, toiling away for 12 years in relative anonymity in the middle of nowhere in the hopes or with this prayer that one day this magnus opus would be worthy of all the time and energy devoted to it. It's so inspiring to hear you talk about it. I kind of have two two big questions that come out of it because on paper, like you said, your mum used to be a food critic, your dad invested in wine. So then it would be synonymous with you going and therefore opening a winery with your husband. But this winery, like you say, you kind of alluded to it, it was pretty derelict. Hadn't it been, there'd been no one there for about 45 years. It was kind of in uncharted territory so this is actually for you coming to it completely with fresh eyes and minimal knowledge like you say you enjoyed wine but that was that was pretty much it to start with that just seems like an incredible task to take on but you've done it and you've done it brilliantly how do you feel about it now in retrospect looking back at everything that you had to work through to get to where you are now and tell us more about where you are now as well Wow, well, that, I appreciate you you saying that because it was extremely daunting. Like I found it, as I mentioned, I suffered from pathological shyness as a child. And the whole idea of getting out onto the world stage with this untested, unproven track record. And of course, because everything is handmade and and all of that, you know, the idea of going to the critics and you have to make your cost base is very high. The prices reflect all the thought and care and, and the very natural environment that we try to protect, which I'll come back to. And that stage fright, I mean, I remember these dreams where I would be talking to potential wine trade people or something like that and just feeling all the fear and anxiety and, and humiliation of feeling completely out of my depth. Is it imposter uh, syndrome of a 
kind of very variety. much so. yeah so you have to you know these these expressions uh fake it till you make it or fake it till you believe it all these <laughs> wonderful things well, had to write a few textbooks of those myself <laughs> i don't think there's any way you can undertake something like that without confronting your fears and also just not listening to them finding a way to shove them into the back of your head and la 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 you know only just going forward because if you think about things too much it's hard to get out of bed in the morning you know i think you just have to do what you have to do and one of the things it forced me to do which has helped me a lot now with pretty much everything that happens, including what's happening right now to the wine industry and, and to us and to everybody else around the world, is that you learn very deliberately to try to reclaim every minute of every day away from thinking about the past or thinking about the, your fears or thinking about the things you can't do any, everything about, you know, anything or everything about, and just taking it away, yanking it out of the past and just putting it into, okay, well, what am I going to do next? What can I do? What should I do? And only looking forward because it's a bit scary because you see the level of the challenges that you have and you see how far down on the mountain you are and how much energy it's going to take to get to the top. Mm. So that process of just putting your blinders on and saying, okay, I have to get through this day. I have to figure this out. I'm not going to wonder too much about why or how or, or whatever. It's just going to happen. And I didn't know how to do that before. But when you're faced with ginormous challenges and very unfamiliar territory, you suddenly learn how to get through things. Personally, I think it was harder for me than for some other people because their personalities were maybe more suited for that kind of risk-taking and that kind of self-belief and confidence. All I can say is that 10 years into it, more now, but certainly just in terms of launching our own wines, it is a learned skill. Anyone can learn it when they have to or when they want to. They just have to do it. Our place was there was no winery, there was just a vineyard. And having to start from scratch and invent every single aspect of how we were going to make that wine, what kind of winery we were going to build, you know, not even the fun parts like the packaging and the labeling and all the things that people want to be spending their time on, but rather really getting those foundations right. That was a bit like an iceberg you know you see the tip of the iceberg you see the the clients now they just see the top part and they say oh well it's quite surprising that in only 10 years a wine like Chêne Bleu from an off the beaten path place people who hadn't had an established track record etc cetera, etc cetera, could be on you know some of the best tables or some of the you know getting the highest whatever that in fact it's because we spent so much time on the foundations and that's never really seen i'll just give you a very simple illustration but you come at night and you see all the twinkly lights around the property etc etc there are two meter trenches that were dug everywhere with 10 kilometers of 
cable <laughs> just so that you can show up and say, oh, look, it's so twinkly, right? But <laughs> it's sort of everything. And I think everybody has had experiences like that. Uh, but there's, there's like a lot. Swan, of, isn't it? It's beautiful yeah. at the top and you're paddling um, frantically underneath. Absolutely. Mm. All of that. You're so right. And I do think that the only silver lining on that, and but it's, a, it's the most important one. It's all about that silver lining is that having put yourself through that process, having become accountable for every outcome of everything that happens, and I'm not saying just me, it's, it's, it's our family, it's my husband mm. initially, his sister, your brother-in-law, me, and then eventually the other people who joined us and now the new generation and, and other things like that. But all of us who were pulling to lift the barn, as they say, as hard as it is, it was also one of the things that's given me the most clarity of purpose and meaning in my life. I think if that we had just shown up with some turnkey operation, write a big check, something like that, like a lot of people who convert to winemaking, they're much more sensible. They, they buy an existing operation, something with a bunch of commercial outlets already, and then they just freshen up the the label or something or create a couple of special cuvées or do whatever that's the right way to do it commercial <laughs> point of view absolutely that's what makes most sense but from an existential point of view there's nothing like doing it all yourself from scratch learning all the lessons crying <laughs> having all the setbacks that come with making lots of mistakes or or having other people let you down and then somehow figuring it out and doing it right the second time or the mm. third time around. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future program and how are you involved? So I had the great fortune of hearing about Pinky for a long time and eventually meeting the extraordinary Pinky Lilani, who's been such an influence on me and, and on so many people have had the pleasure of getting to know her through a dear friend, Charlotte Nolo, who just celebrated her 40th birthday yesterday in full fanfare. <laughs> I, uh, I had the privilege of seeing a little video Zoom glimpse of, uh, of Pinky there. But Charlotte has an extraordinary propensity for selecting people on the basis of their kindness quotient. <laughs> and um, she is very sensitive to that and, and has surrounded herself with people that she appreciates very much from that point of view. So when she told me all about Pinky and the wonderful work she was doing, I knew before I even met her that she was an exceptional human being. And so when she finally connected us, it was like someone I had known for much of my life or had wished I had known. I'm the exact kind of person one would like to fill one's whole life with. Mm -hmm. um, and so she told me all about her program. And it was such a happy coincidence because I've always felt a lot of gratitude myself for how kind some people had been to me as role models, mentors, or just, you know, random acts of kindness, connecting me with someone when I needed something, even though it wasn't to their immediate benefit, all of those wonderful things. And I had always hoped that as I became more established in my profession or in my life, I could give back, maybe not to the people who had been there for me, 
if they were not around, but certainly for younger people coming up through the ranks. And I tried already before I met Pinky on an informal basis to be making time for those young people if they ever needed anything. And I had observed that young women in particular between the ages of 25 and 35 were often struggling with how to establish a work-life balance, with how to take themselves seriously and be taken seriously by others in their profession. And lots of issues that come to the surface, not to mention just the physiological ones, right? We talk about the frontal cortex having to mature by the time you're in your late 20s. A lot of things come together where young women who got to a certain place in life without great effort just by being very good students or very well-meaning members of society were confronted with a lot of big questions about the next steps and all of that. And even ones who had accomplished a lot in their first 10 years often had a, a little moment of pause where they needed to look at a bunch of other directions and figure out what their next steps should be. And for that, the cliche now, which was not so common years ago about creating your own board of directors and having a little Olympus of people that you could call on when you had some big existential questions or doubts. I just always wanted to be there for those people when they reached out to me. And I helped young men as well. I did find that in general, more young women than young men were looking for guidance and you know, actively seeking it out, but didn't have particular gender discrimination. Mm. And then Pinky, when she came into my life and we had this wonderful organization, of course, I put my hand up and said, listen, it'd be a privilege to help you with your fabulous organization. And that's how our professional friendship developed. And now I'd like to consider it a personal friendship as well. I have some quick fire questions just to finish. What would you describe as your greatest success? Well, on a very personal basis, I'd suppose it's overcoming my shyness in a way that allows me to even talk about it on a podcast. To a bunch of I haven't met. Very brave. Um, that, is, uh, that is certainly something that has helped me make my place in the world. And I do recommend to anyone else who has self-consciousness of any type to find a way to get through that because it opens a lot of possibilities, a lot of doors that would have not been available to me because it's a key aspect in designing your destiny and not waiting for someone to come to you and ask you to do things for them. And I think for a lot of young women, that can be a challenge and perhaps men as well. And then on a more professional level, I would say that having now that, you know, somewhat of a, of a tipping point of people coming to us because they've heard about what we're doing, because they have tried the wines and loved them, because they've read about us somewhere. Mm -hmm. And whether it's to stay with us at the property, to study at our wine school, or to just enjoy the wines wherever they are, that is the single most gratifying thing in any day mm. uh, that can happen is some unsolicited appreciation from someone somewhere so that I feel that unrelenting push of that boulder up the mountain, that to have some pull, to have some people saying, oh, you know, 
I heard about you and I, I love what you're doing. That really keeps me going and it really helps me to race against time and hopefully leave this place and this winery in a state that I feel is worthy of the efforts that we've put into it. I did want to say that on the sustainability front, my husband is a great conservationist and he's very passionate about nature and what needs to be done to create sustainable interaction between humans and the planet. Mm. And he deliberately selected this site because it is way at the top of a mountain in the UNESCO biosphere surrounded by this fantastic natural amphitheater above the pollution line, et cetera, with fantastic biodiversity in the biosphere. There's 1,200 species just of butterflies, just to give you an idea of how special the place is from that point of view. And he was experimenting from the start in finding ways of sustainable viticulture when People were just talking about organic, biodynamic, which is already great, but only you know less than 10% of vineyards are, are even organic, mm. if you can believe that. And so it was very much ahead of its time. And for a young girl from Manhattan who only knew about Central Park and, uh, and had really any experience or responsibility in managing a biosphere, I must say, when you say what I'm most proud of, and I won't take credit for this because I learned from him and from his sister and and her husband, but just knowing that we've found a a way to make award-winning, age-worthy, collector-worthy wines that are also in full respect of that environment and of the health and well-being of the people who drink those wines because we haven't used the chemicals, because we found expensive, complicated ways to sidestep all the use of trickery that is very common, unfortunately, in, in nowadays in winemaking. I think that's something that we're very excited about. We've created this whole sustainability program using bees as a way to turbocharge the cover crops between the vines, which in turn allow the microbiome to develop and the complexity and, and diversity of that microbiome is essential in transmitting the famous sense of place that you talk about in terroir and fine wine, because those microorganisms digest those soils and make the nutrients accessible to the plants. So they have that symbiotic relationship. But in the course of doing that, they give the grapes the sense of place. And I think that is really an important dimension in the future of viticulture. And since I uh, created this think tank called Fine Minds for Fine Wines, and now the Arani Global Institute for the Future of Fine Wine, which is an umbrella organization that helps with best practices in the wine world, I think the fact that we can also on a systemic level put some of that information into the entire wine world as a possible roadmap for other wineries that want to be making wine that way, working with top scientists. We have four scientists from some of the top universities in the world, et cetera, who are working with us on these things. I'm hoping that it's not just about this place and this wine, but that it's a a bigger help to moving the wine world more and more towards a sustainable future. After all that, it doesn't seem fair to ask you about your greatest failure. <laughs> You've done so much that is good to ask you about something that's gone bad. What would you say is your greatest failure? Oh, I've written a couple of anthologies on that, actually. 
starting from you know the winemaking i think our first vintage was epic we had counted on the winery being finished in 2006 just in time for our first harvest but hadn't realized that there was some fine print in the contracts with the workers that they would all go away for five weeks of paid French holiday <laughs> right before we had our grapes coming in and six for those wine people who know the Rhone was a very hot vintage which meant that the harvest was moved up and our winery wasn't ready for the grapes so by the time we brought in the white wines which are the first to be ready usually the potential alcohol on some of the Viognier had actually gotten to 17.5%, which you know that even anything past 15 is very alcoholic. It's certainly not suitable for white wine. And so the only thing you can do in a case like that is to stop the fermentation early and keep the residual sugar. So we were now making a sweet Viognier, which is very eccentric and odd. It's not a grape that lends itself very well to sweet wines. And at that point, we also completely misjudged some of the sulfur levels we needed to stop the fermentation from reoccurring because we used the normal amounts and not the special amounts that you would need for a sweet wine. So after we bottled it, it actually started re-fermenting in the bottle. So we ended up with sparkling sweet Viognier, <laughs> which <laughs> was a curiosity at best, but certainly uh, not something that we would want to impose on our, on our first consumers. <laughs> the last 25 years have been littered with mistakes and starting again and having to break things that you had just built, which is the most frustrating, right? It's bad enough mm. if you have to change something that's been around for a long time, but you just spend all your hard-earned money get it all done and realize that you had, you know, it was done in a terrible way. We had, even in the courtyard, we had put in these bricks of light with light bulbs behind them. And it looked really nice at night until the first light bulb gave out, oh. at which point we realized that the workers had not left an access to the light bulbs it cemented oh, in the no. <laughs> we had to smash all the, the walls to change the light bulbs oh, uh, the list is long if you have 17 <laughs> more hours i'm happy to take you through <laughs> but on the other hand how can you learn if you're not prepared to give yourself a wide margin for yeah. error the mantra of the women of the future is kindness and collaboration what does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life Pinky has, has taught me so much about these things because we gravitate to those concepts based on our personal experience. And I think everybody would, would recognize that kindness, collaboration, and gratitude are what really keeps our society together. And when any one of those things is, is missing, immediately the costs to all our functioning as humans is in jeopardy. So we have an intuitive appreciation of those things, all of us, I hope. If we don't, we really are in trouble. Pinky has done a tremendous service to me. It's one of those gifts that keeps giving because she has articulated and rendered real in a systematic, organized fashion a process 
to underscore that, to reward it, to scout for it and find it and celebrate it in a very global public way. Mm. And ironically, one of the reasons that our friend connected us is with a very dear friend and Stetson in the US, who had already done a lot on a little kindness project of her own. She and I were figuring out how to bring kindness into the workplace as one of the yardsticks alongside diversity and some of the other things that could be used in a professional environment to assess someone's contribution to a team, to a company. And the fact that Pinky had created a system that assessed people's accomplishments, but at the same time, always using a matrix that included also what they were doing for others, whether they had a track record of looking out for other people or good causes. That duality of accomplishment and kindness simultaneously when we were meeting candidates often ended up making the difference in who we selected and who we rewarded because at parity of accomplishment, the ones who had done the most for others ended up being the ones that we celebrated the most. And although we would only review the five people that were on the shortlist, they were all fabulous already. Uh, but that certainly in my experience really made the difference. And the fact that she's figured out a way to help a whole bunch of people assess a whole bunch of situations and a whole bunch of candidates in a really organized way. Oh my God, that is mm -hmm. such a gift to all of us. And I hope that this organization will just continue to go from strength to strength because we all need it and the world is a better place for having it. Last two questions. Is there anything that scares you and what's left on your to-do list? I definitely have some concerns about what happens next in the wine world and specifically to small wineries. I, today people are, of course, as we are very preoccupied with the hospitality industry because they are on the front line of businesses that are the hardest hit. Many are family owned. In fact, ironically in the US, they're not the ones getting the help, only the big chains are. I mean, it's all insane. And many of our sommelier friends with, on whom we rely very dramatically because small wineries need the, the sommeliers to spend the time getting to know them and, and sharing the information about them. All of those people are really in a distressed situation. And fortunately, there are some charities that are there to help. And of course, we've contributed to those. But unfortunately, the wineries, and especially small ones, I think are next in line because of a number of things that as a former financial analyst, I'm all too aware of, such as the fact that we have very fixed costs as, as businesses we're dependent on nature we don't have control over how much we produce of anything on any given year uh, we don't have margins we don't you know there's lots of there are lots of systemic problems with small wineries that are brought to the fore and exacerbated by this situation so certainly anybody who does enjoy fine wine boutique wineries all of that please do consider my hashtag drink small right mm. now because the big wineries can sell through supermarkets and have lots of 
clout in the market and can borrow money at better rates and all the stuff that will probably help them get through this period. But the little guys don't have anyone to turn to. And if clients don't go out of their way to find those sort of indie winemakers and indie wine merchants, it's going to really be a hard time in the second part of the year, I think, when all the unpaid invoices come through for us and all of that stuff. So we're in the fortunate position to be able to get through this. I'm not speaking specifically about us. We've worked very hard to to react very quickly to things. Mm-hmm. And that's because uh, we have the good fortune, I think, of having being very adaptable because of how much we've had to go through. They say that, you know, Darwin at least would say that it's not the strongest or the smartest that survive, right? It's the ones who adapt the quickest. And so small wineries are not first in line for adaptability. And so that's something that does keep me awake at night is uh, what we can do to raise awareness for what's about to affect a lot of people in our business. And still to accomplish, mm-hmm. uh, goodness, I feel like I'm at the very beginning of our adventure, even though we're 25 years into it in viticulture and 10 years into it on the winemaking side in terms of of selling our first cuvées that were from 2006, we released them in 2010. And I would say that the fact that several of the younger people in the family have taken an interest in winemaking and in our project is so encouraging and does open up some prospects for the future but independently from that that notion of that race against time of seeing just how far I can get before I get hit by a bus or you know whatever else stops me in my tracks I feel like every day is a gift because it's one step further to accomplishing this uh, vision that that we set out for ourselves It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've learned so much about wine in general. (laughs) So thank you for imparting that to everybody. I really appreciate it. Well, these are universal subjects. I think the hero's journey, right? The Mm. the fact that you set out on a mission, like in The Hobbit, you don't have the skills and sometimes you don't even have the desire. Like go on that adventure whether you choose to or not and certainly doesn't allow you to choose which parts of the adventure you want to set off on and yet the best thing that i can say is that everybody should find that board of directors those people in their lives that can help them and encourage them and use that to take the risks don't worry about what happens next something will happen it won't immediately be good or bad but the experience that you'll gain from it will be good and that we all can help each other to climb those mountains nobody should really have to do that completely alone everybody has friends families or random strangers or wonderful organizations somebody out there that's going to help them on their way and life will give them an opportunity to turn around and help that next person up that mountain. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. 
thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.